Welcome to MLS Assist, a podcast created to give insight into Major League Soccer's on-field action. My name is Joe Lowry, and I'm joined, as always, by Jordan Angeli. Jordan, you did not win the Supporter Shield this weekend, but the New England Revolution (laughs) did, in spite of your inability to bring that piece of silverware home. How are you? I'm good. I really, I felt like my weekend wasn't as good as theirs, but it really, (laughs) really wasn't. Um, No, I had a great weekend, but I think the Revs had a better weekend. Not only that, but what we're going to continue to talk about today, which is their ability to just find a way. And that's the reason why they also are the Sporter Shield winners. I just love, I love a lot of things about this Revolution team. I love Bruce Arena's dancing around the supporter shield. He's talked about how he doesn't care about it. He's talked about how he would like his team to have it, and they have it either way at this point. And one of the arguments he's made in the past about why maybe he doesn't put as much stock into this trophy is the unbalanced schedule, which is a huge argument against the supporter shield and MLS's competitive structure in general. I don't think there's necessarily a much better way to do it with how the league is structured now. But he's right. I mean, if you can play Inter-Miami four times in a year instead of having to play maybe, I I don't know, some of the teams higher up in the East. If your schedule bounces, yeah, Houston. If your schedule bounces the right way, I mean, there's some some good things that can happen. But either way, the Supporter Shield is the best mechanism we've got right now, Jordan. Yeah. And the last, I mean, last year and this year are just different, right? And I think the Supporter Shield for previous years was as balanced as they could make, can make it balanced, right? With everybody playing at least an the opposite side um conference once and then everybody in within their conference twice it it's weird these last two years but that being said in its weirdness i think it's also hard to beat a team four times or yeah. three times and that takes figuring out a way to like add a little wrinkle or uh recognize strategy from the opposing team and then capitalize on exposing it so i think that yeah, it is strange. And of course, Bruce Arena has been very good for a long time at um, making sure the attention is on him and not his team, I think, a lot, <laughs> which we see with a lot of great coaches. And um, a lot of the talk being him just skirting around these types of things or not wanting to talk formation or whatever it may be. But in the end, he's getting his team to perform, and that's all that matters. Yeah. And I don't want to take anything away from what the Rebs have done this season. Yeah. They are. Right a dominant force in the Eastern Conference. And we saw that for stretches of this game that we're going to talk about, the New England Revolution's 2-2 draw with Orlando City. We're going to talk about both teams, not just New England, but with New England winning the Shield and clinching it on Saturday when SKC beat the Sounders in that wild game, Jordan Angeli. With with New England winning it on Saturday and then playing again on Sunday, we figured it would be good to start this episode with a bit of credit for the work they've done this season. They have been a force out in the Eastern Conference. They are three points away. They're on 70 points right now. They are three points away from setting a new single-season points record in Major League Soccer, and they have three games to do it. It feels like that's going to happen. They're sitting on 70 points. Nashville and Philadelphia are tied in second and third. Well, they're not tied on goal difference, but they're tied on points with 49. Jordan, that's a 21-point gap between one and two. It's insane. It is insane. It could also be the largest margin of victory in a conference, and... I think in MLS history, actually, the Revs only have two games left. So they're oh, one games, game above everybody me. else, which which gives them this awkward. Um, I mean, not only do they have a bye going into the playoffs because they'll be that top seed, but then they have this 
you know, everybody's going to be playing three games, getting a little bit of momentum. So I think that's going to be interesting too, how they manage these gaps in between. Of course, it's nice to have time off, but is it too much time? I think that's always the question. Yeah. And that's what I, I feel for Bruce Wayne and the Revs in that way. Taking that much off feels like way too much for me in the gap yeah. they're going to have. And really the gap they've had since they've played a meaningful game at all. So it's it's a challenge for them. But the way they continue to fight back and get results and, and just the talent they have. I wrote a piece earlier this year, and I think we've referenced it on the show before, about the Revs and their tactics. And, and there are things that they do, and we'll talk about that in this game. I feel like when I watch the Revs, I'm always caught by the individual rather than the team. And that's credit to Bruce Arena and the front office and the way that they've rebuilt this organization and infused talent into this group. The players that the Revs could bring off the bench in this game, they started with a heavily rotated starting 11. They have really only two regular starters in there and Andrew Farrell and Matt Turner. It's a massively rotated squad. And the second half comes around and in comes Carles Hill and Adam Buxa and Gustavo Bowen, and Tejon Buchanan and Dewan Jones. And those five players, especially the attacking foursome there, are phenomenal players. They have some of the best talent in this league. And what Bruce Arena has done is allowed his players to go out there and given them a rough framework to play in and build on. And and those players have really carried the torch the rest of the way, Jordan. And I think it's really interesting about what you said about the substitutions. As you said, the attacking four. And really, it wasn't Tejan Buchanan in this case. It was... Dewan Jones, yeah. who was one of those attackers who yeah. really significantly changed this game and was a menace on the left side. But that's just who this team is. I feel like they are so confident in anybody. You know, it, it wasn't, I mean, they get a PK called against him at the beginning of the second half, but it wasn't as if they were out of this game really two to nothing, right? They were still in it for a lot of the time. And it shows the depth of being able to change. Not a lot of teams can can change nine players on the field and still feel like they're in it, which is wild. It, it is a testament to the culture that they've created, the ability that they have within training to set a tone and to expect a lot out of each other and then get out on the field and perform. It's an impressive group that they've assembled and, and yeah. they play some good soccer at times. Jordan, let's dive into this game. Again, a 2-2 draw, as we said. Let's give Orlando some shine here quickly. Do you want to walk us through their starting 11 and maybe the general approach that Oscar Pereja used in this game? Yeah, it's a um, 4-2-3-1 that Orlando is playing. And I, I think a lot of the times... Um, attacking wise, it can look like that, but a lot of freedom going to Nani and Chris Mueller to be mobile going forward. There were times where Nani was all the way on the, he started on the left. There was times where he was all the way on the right side. Um, do you want me to go over their exact starting lineup? Was that helpful it's up to for you, people? Jordan. Do your thing. Okay. You know? Well, Gaiese is in, I'll, I'll do it. Gaiese <laughs> is in um, goal and was really made some brilliant saves in this one. Uh, Jao Moutinho on the left side from left to right across the back. Schlegel, Antonio Carlos, and Juan was the right back. It was uh, Junior Urso and Sebas Mendez as the two holding midfielders. Nani on the left, as I mentioned. Uh, Pereira in the middle and Chris Mueller on the right. And then it was Daryl DK up front. And that 4-2-3-1 had a lot of mobility, as I said, in those front three right behind DK. And in in defending moments, they really look like they play in a a 4-4-2 block. And Pereira Pereira plays a little bit under DK, trying to be that outlet for them to be the connection piece when they do go forward. But that's really the structure that um, Oscar Pereira has used and this Orlando team is comfortable with as they play. 
I appreciate teams like Orlando that have a consistent shape and consistent setup and, and have <laughs> tweaks within games, but also just have a default setting that works for them. And I think we saw that from Orlando in this game. It's that same 4-2-3-1 that then rotates into sort of a three-at-the-back shape with John Moutinho becoming a left center back next to the two center backs to his right. And then it becomes Nani, who sometimes holds the width, and I say sometimes because, like you mentioned, Jordan, he goes where he wants to. But you have Nani at times that can be isolated out wide. You've got Chris Mueller tucking into the pocket on the right side and Juan overlapping to provide width on the right. And then Pereira to the left, shaded to the left underneath the nine. In this game, it was Daryl DK. I mean, these are things in rotations that we've been talking about since MLS is back. Last year, right when Orlando really burst on the scenes under Oscar Pereja, and, and we gave a lot of credit to the work that he's done, then it feels like so long ago, Jordan. I was thinking about the other day. It's It really wasn't that long ago. It was just last season, but I it know. feels like an eternity ago that that, that right? MLS's back tournament happened. We've seen yeah. a lot of these rotations before from Orlando, and I thought after the first 10 minutes where New England really controlled possession in a way that I didn't expect them to with this rotated 11, Orlando kind of stormed back and started controlling possession and had some really lovely sequences building through midfield. Mendez and Urso getting on the ball. Pereira showing and getting on the ball between the lines and driving forward. They had some really nice moments in this first half, Jordan. Yeah, that's what my first two notes on Orlando were in the 11th minute. It was Nani all the way on the right side, creating an overload um, with Huan, as you said, doing what he does best, overlapping Mueller coming into the pocket. And those three really combining on the right side to figure out if they could break this this New England team down, but just by showing them something differently. And then my next note was the three Orlando midfielders were just playing through yeah. those two players centrally for um, for New England so easily. There was this combination in the 27th minute, and it was just this beautiful sequence of passing, uh, 3v2 passing through the midfield in, in what was a little bit of a transition moment. So New England was a little bit stretched. But the beauty of the way Orlando can play with the ball on the ground was really exhibited in, in a lot of different times throughout the, that, I guess, the last 30 minutes of mm-hmm. the first half where they really had the ball a lot. I noted that sequence in the 27th minute as well, and, and one a little bit before that too, Jordan. This 25th minute sequence, it's Junior Urso getting on the ball. He plays it to Mendez in midfield, then Mendez bounces it to John Moutinho, then Moutinho plays it back to Mendez, and then Mendez finds Pereira, and then Pereira finds DK, and the play doesn't advance past DK in that moment. Or doesn't, I, I'm not sure the ball actually gets to DK. But man, the speed at which Orlando moved the ball specifically. Sebas Mendes, and we've talked about him before on this show as a player that I think we both really enjoy watching. He does the defensive work, he gets on the ball, and he moves it quickly. He doesn't always play these incredible diagonals, switches, although we can do that stuff. But in this game specifically, it was a lot of boom, boom, getting on the ball, rhythm-building passes, and Urso's good at this stuff as well. He doesn't get on the ball quite as much as Mendes does. But I just really enjoy this all-action midfield from Orlando. And then when they have Pereira as the 10, Mauricio Pereira, when he's healthy, which he's not always healthy, when they have him as the finishing touch on this midfield group, I think it's a it's a strong position group for Orlando. And it gave New England some trouble in this game. Yeah. It, well, not only Pereira, but they have DK up front who is finding the finding a little bit of his form again, right? And so to have that player, I think Orlando does such a good job of, as we just mentioned, playing a lot through the midfield, but sucking players into those central places that then it does give space, whether it is on the right with Huan and Mueller doing some sort of combination or on the left with Nani just isolating in that space. They do a good job of attracting attention centrally through DK and Pereira, Pereira and the, the combinations that they can have. 
But I think one of the things that is like, it's like clockwork with this Orlando team is Chris Mueller engaging an outside back for the opposing team or one of the three center backs if they're playing against a three team and bringing them into the midfield space. And when he, he's so good at this, because if they leave him and they let him check into the midfield space and get the ball in turn, well, he's good on the dribble too. But if they come with him, they leave space and beyond. And Orlando is so good at exploiting that and getting Huan to the attacking third through a little chipped ball. And they did this multiple times. And even though you know it's coming, Joe, it, they seem to execute it so well all the time. This is like an extreme example, but I think about when the defense knows exactly what's coming, I think about Aryan Robin, and he would always yeah. cut inside on that left foot. You know yes. it's happening. You know 1,000% of the time he's going to do that, and you still can't stop it. With Orlando, it is similar, less effective, certainly, and, and the players aren't at that same level, but that's what came to mind for me. Jordan, I love that sequence, and Juan is devastating at times on the overlap. The, the personnel works, and it makes sense in the spots that Oscar Pereja puts it in. So I, I like all of those things for Orlando. One thing, though, that, that made me think back to last week's show when we talked about Montreal is Orlando had a lot of nice build-up sequences. They had good moments. They had center backs driving forward. They play out of a back three. There were a lot of similarities with Pereja's setup to Wilfred Nancy's setup. Not, not, not a perfect carbon copy or anything like that, but the one thing that I thought was missing from Orlando in this game was a lot of chance creation in the final third. They had nice sequences to get to the final third, but at that point, the play was lacking. They get the goal in the 39th minute. It's an, a header from Nani, the aftermath of a corner kick. John Moutinho gets a cross in. Nani gets his head on it. Matt Turner doesn't make the save, which is a little troubling because he is slumping right now. That's a save he can make and a save yeah, he's he made in the it. past. So he, he parries it almost into the side netting and, and the ball finds the back of the net for Orlando. So they, they are up at halftime and they get another goal in the 50th minute with, with Daryl Dike converting that penalty that, that, that penalty that Nani draws I believe, on A.J. De La Garza in that moment for Orlando in New England's box. They have goal-scoring chances, but just not a lot of them, and that's that's kind of borne out in the numbers. They're closer to the bottom of the table than the top of the table this season, Orlando, in terms of expected goals per 90 minutes. They're not this really hyperactive attacking team. When they do break into the final third, they can keep possession. They can have some some really dazzling sequences when they have the ball, but that final piece is lacking for Orlando this season. I think that could be something that comes back to bite them as they really yeah. push through the playoffs. Yeah. Uh, Two things I want to say with Orlando, both goals come from isolating Nani on the left side and, and it's through quick, quick um, switches of the point. And it's so important to know that that's something that they want to do and getting that help defender over. And you, you recognized at the beginning of the game that that was something that new England was trying to do. Whenever Nani got the ball, they had a second player trying to help in, in defend him because he, the PK, for example, like how does he chop that back like that? It is just so silky smooth that it is difficult trying to get the ball away from him and you have to be extra cautious and also feel like you have that support defensively to be able to defend him. Um, I want to say two of the goals, it was this Nani goal and it was the goal from Buxa at the end. There was a lot of um, crosses into the box, especially from Orlando. That's one of the ways that they can find success. And DK got his head on a lot of the balls. He did. But if you'll go back and look at, I didn't mark when DK got the headers, but if you, they're probably in some sort of highlights. Go back and watch DK when he's heading the ball. He's jumping straight up from a standing position trying to get power on the ball. Nani's goal in the first goal comes from 
I guess he just drew the one, second one. He didn't score the second one. The first goal from Nani comes from him attacking the ball. He held his run. The ball gets sent in, and then he's attacking, timing it. So all the power is coming through his run. Great finish. The Buxa goal is the same, the, the game-winning goal. He is attacking the space, trying to get in front of the defender. And the, the runs are very different. One's a little bit longer, one's shorter. But I think that so many times balls crosses are in a, ineffective because they go to the space where the player already is instead of going to a space where the player can attack it. And those two are really good examples of how effective that is and how um, good those crosses were to get players attacking a space that you knew could be exploited. So um, it's a small thing, but I think it lacks sometimes in in this league is just the the quality. When we talk about quality of cross, that's one of the things is not only playing it to the player, but to the space where the player can run onto it and get some more power on it. And in the first goal that New England scores, the first goal that Buxa has, I don't I don't really know what Gustavo Bo's intentions are with that ball. I can't really tell Me what the neither. point of it. I was thought, it a shot? What was in it, the world? Was it a a poorly hit cross that worked out really well, or was it an incredibly well placed ball in that he knew exactly where Adam Buxa was going to be? Either way, I I don't know. But Jordan, the point that you're making still applies to that goal as well. Even yes. though it's not a header, the ball comes in weird ball played from Bo, whipped in at a strange angle that's not on frame, not really in the vicinity of every, of anyone. But Buxa manages to arrive onto that ball using his run, and he gets his foot on it, not his head. So that's why it's not a perfect comparison, but similar theme to what you're pointing out here. The momentum and, and the the speed that you have as you approach those balls gives you additional power on those types of shots. Yep, yep. And I think, so, do you want to trans- transition yeah. into to New England? Because, yeah. um, do you want to start in the first half? Is there much that you have going for them in the first half that you want to talk about? <laughs> Not really. I will go through <laughs> a little bit of how they set up. It wasn't so okay. much a 4-2 four, four diamond, which we've seen a lot from the Revs this season. Oh no, yeah. It was more of a 4-2-3-1, but weird personnel, right? And the weirdest one that I, I thought, I'm not going to run through the whole lineup, Jordan. You did it, which was very kind of you. But uh, I'm not going to do it with, with New England's rotated squad. It was Captoom who we've seen playing in central midfield a lot for New England. Well, not a lot. I don't think he's played quite, maybe just hit a thousand minutes in this game. But we've seen him play in central midfield for the Revs this season. He was playing as a right midfielder, like a right outside midfielder, which is not a good spot for him at all. He doesn't have the speed. He's not dynamic on the dribble in a winger outside midfielder kind of way. And Captoon, I think, kind of embodies this whole revolution team in the first half. You had Bunbury up top, isolated a little bit. You had Boatang underneath him trying to bridge the gap, sort of. It was a lot of in-block defending, some pressing from the revs, not a lot of cohesion in that group, which makes sense given just how heavily they rotated. Yeah. What's so weird is we've we've mentioned how Bruce Arena doesn't like to talk about formations or whatever. And and I didn't see the formation as that at all. I thought yeah. it was a 4-4-2. More, it looked to me more like, especially in attack, like... Um, I don't want to call it a box and I don't want to call it a diamond. It was like those two, Captoon and Trestison, were right above and a little tucked in. They could be outside midfielders. They could be like inverted wingers. It was really interesting with Boateng and Bunbury like as the two front runners. So at times, it really actually looked like a 4-2-4 for New England, which was really interesting. Um, but I think that is is such evidence to Bruce Arena and how he's built this team because they understand space 
and how to create space for one another. So the formation is the least of his, he just puts players out there and then they, they watch each other and the movements of the players next to him, especially when they're attacking. And so I do feel like the players look at times like they could be playing three different positions. So um, I really enjoy watching them play because it is so, it feels like they are feeling the game and playing that way. And I think that's kind of the indirect point that Bruce Arena has been trying to make over the years. When he consistently just doesn't talk about formations, he doesn't like to talk about tactics in press conferences. He doesn't really talk about any of those things in the public sphere. And I think in a lot of ways, he's behind the curve, tactically speaking, in, in, in terms of data and his ability to use those things and really shape a team in, in a more modern way. But the thing that I, I always will give Bruce Arena credit for, and Jordan, this is what you're talking about, is... The reason he doesn't like to talk about those things with people is because, at least I think, is because he doesn't think that people talk about soccer in the right way. We all get caught up, and, and especially folks in media, I think, get caught up talking about this formation or that formation. Yeah. When in reality, formations are a basic starting point. They're, they're more useful to talk about defensive setups, I think, than offensive setups, even just Orlando's shape, 4-2-3-1, sort of. But in possession, it's not really that at all, right? It's so fluid, and that's the point that Bruce Arena in a, in a long-standing way, has been trying to make, in my view, is it's not about the numbers you're saying. It's much more about how the players interact, where they're occupying, what, what space they're occupying on the field in relation to each other, to the ball, to the opposition, things like that. And, and Bruce Arena has been adamant in his stance on not really discussing those things because that's how he thinks about soccer, which I do think is the right way to think about soccer when you're right. trying to prepare a team to win games. So, yeah, yeah, credit to Bruce Arena for all of those things. And credit to him for the very straightforward second half subs that he made because it's a no-brainer <laughs> to get this talent on the field. Jordan, what did you see changing for the Revs in the second half? How quickly did the tide change? Because it did take them a while to get on the board in the second 45. I thought, you know what's interesting is you almost look at it as like a whole different game. Like at halftime, to me, it felt like a whole different game. And with that, even even Orlando played differently. I thought their press was a lot more effective. They were counter-pressing. They put New England under a lot of pressure. They were winning the ball back a lot. And I felt like the tide in the game didn't change until, gosh, like, what did I write down? Like the 70th. I actually don't have a number down here, but I felt like Carlos Heel, of course, was the player who really started to change this. And it wasn't him higher up the field. I thought it was him dropping, dropping into, like, a holding midfielder position and getting on the ball there and and – Orlando was like, oh gosh, what do we do? The thing that I thought really broke Orlando down is when um, Junior Urso followed Heel into the that space. So Heel would drop in and Junior Urso was almost like man-to-man marking him coming in. And then there was this huge space right beyond the attacking midfielders and now that one um, center midfielder for Orlando and in front of their back line. And New England sensed it, and then they really started exploiting it. So I don't know what minute that was. I think it was like right after these. I have subs in the 64th minute, uh, um, and I think it was right after there. It took it a while, but if you think about the beginning of a game – it takes sometimes 10, 15 minutes to like feel like you've gotten into the rhythm. And I think when you bring in three huge players, they have to feel the game out themselves by getting in there and, and getting on the ball. And I think the minute, the, the rough minute that you give Jordan around that second group of subs for the Revs, that's when Dewan Jones and mm-hmm. Gustavo Bo and Tejon Buchanan come in right around the 64th yep. minute. Yep. When that happens, 
that means the Revs have not just Adam Buxa on the field, not just Adam Buxa and Teal Bunbury on the field, but they have Teal Bunbury, Adam Buxa, and Gustavo Bo on the field, and they're playing together up top. There is some fluidity, there's some movement, sure. They're not always in this static line or anything like that, but they're grouped together in the attack. There's not necessarily space for another front runner in Carles Heel, or even for him to be right behind those front three players to give the Revolution some semblance of, of structure after they lose the ball. So he starts to drop more and more. I, at least I noticed it more as the second half wore on. It seems like you did as well. He starts to drop more and he starts to playmake and he starts to pull Orlando's midfielders apart or that movement from him and the Rev starts to pull Orlando apart. And they get on the ball more, and, and the Revs at this point are, are more so looking for that draw. And and uh, New, Orlando, excuse me, is, is more so looking for the draw at yeah. that point. And obviously New England would be happy, I think, with almost anything in terms of points at this stage of the game. But that, that change and that shift in movement that you're talking about, Jordan, I think that played a big part in this game. Another point I want to make is Captoom. I talked about him in the first half and, and the Revs having him out wide and how he didn't like him in that spot at all. Jordan, the, the numbers don't necessarily love Captoom just yet, and he has some defensive deficiencies, and he's not always the biggest passer. But man, we saw his best skill on display in the second half, and it helped the routes. Not It didn't just help himself. He is so shifty on the ball when he's playing in central midfield. When he's playing as a right-sided number eight, which is kind of where I thought he was in the second half, it was fluid again. It doesn't matter a ton. He was more narrow. He was much more of a central midfielder in the second 45-minute stretch. When he was getting on the ball, he was shaking people off of him and helping the Revs advance, advance possession in a way that they just didn't do, in, in the way they didn't have in the first half. 56th minute, Captoom gets on the ball, turns past Mauricio Pereira, beats Junior Urso, breaks forward, and plays Bunbury in the box. In that moment, he progressed almost the middle third of the field all on his own and gave the Revs an attacking chance. He had a nice through ball in the 74th minute. I just like what he brings as an eight or as part of a double pivot or as a six, whatever the situation is, much less so than when he's out wide, of course. But Captoon's involvement, I thought, was another, maybe more minor factor behind the refs' comeback, but certainly a factor in that second half. I really liked him. I had him in my notes, too, especially with his movement off of Carlos Heel, because when if you, if we go to the goal in the 81st minute, it was Carlos Heel dropping back into that space, and Captoon recognizes it, and he goes in beyond a little bit and just tries to to clear some of that space for Carlos Hill. And with that, then that big space is Gustavo Bo tucking inside. So as Bo tucks inside and Captoon goes over, it's like, okay, are the midfielders going to take those players or are the back line for Orlando going to take those players? And that's where it got a little sketchy for them. And it was Gustavo Bo with the um, spectacular cross into the box. I'm going opposite just so we cover all our bases. Uh, <laughs> um, spectacular cross into the box and it goes for the goal, but it's that movement. And it happened just a couple of minutes later. I had 85th minute, that same rotation, Carlos heel back, Captoon a little bit higher, but Orlando defended it better that time because they tucked Tasho Akindele into the seam centrally. So it, it gave them a defensive presence in that space that junior or so then left. So, they adjusted. It was just a little too late as far as that rotation goes and the ability for New England, I think, to then dictate how uh, Orlando was going to have to defend. In the latter stages of the second half, I thought we're far too open for Orlando's sake. Mm, You're protecting yeah. a lead at home and the game was stretched. You mentioned a sequence in the 85th minute. The goal, of course, happening in the 81st minute. New England nearly get another goal in the 83rd minute. They have a counterattack right through midfield. They break into the box and it's a dangerous chance for the Revs. So 
I think things were too stretched for Orlando's sake as this game wore on because they just needed to shut things down or at least take better care of the ball to allow them to wind the clock down, maybe create a few chances, maybe get a third goal. And they ended up in this weird no-man's land between not really packing it in, not really fully establishing possession or controlling the game with the ball, and it clearly didn't work out for them. New England fight back, of course. And they end up getting a 2-2 draw away from home. A good result for the Revs. A fine result for Orlando. They're still in decent shape in the Eastern Conference. But man, New England are scary when they're operating on all cylinders. The talent they have is scary. Orlando showed some good things in this game as well in that first half. Jordan, I really enjoyed this one. Yeah, this was really fun. And um, I mentioned Duan Jones, how dominant he was on that left side coming in. He was effective. Can we just talk about Andrew Farrell, though, for a second? His recovery speed, it's not as if he doesn't get beat 1v1. Like, he'll get beat 1v1, and he can recover incredibly well. I feel like someone needs to put together also. I was laughing because he'll, like, recover and tackle someone, and then he'll, like, give him a high five. (laughs) Like, I got you. (laughs) It is so funny, and I've noticed it just playing New England a few times this season and watching some of their games. It's like there's so he has so much respect for the other player and what they're trying to execute, but also like I got you. It's kind of like, like a, a, a power like, move. Like oh yeah, you know, <laughs> yes. don't get too out of yourself. It's so funny. <laughs> I I love it. You gotta you gotta like watch it now because he gives them like the opposing players high fives. Oh, that's and, so like, good. Like hits them on the chest. Like oh, you got me there. Like he just <laughs> is having so much fun. He's having so much fun. Oh, I will be watching for Andrew Farrell's activity after making challenges, (laughs) watching for the high fives. We need an Andrew Farrell high five counter at this point. I know. I think so. Jordan, thank you as always for talking sock with me. I always have a ton of fun. You rock. Yeah. You rock too, Joe. Yeah, that was so much fun. And nice to give the Revs some props. Yes. um, for their their stellar season and uh, get a little taste of just how they can still, gosh, they are still effective no matter what. It's it's good for them to get a point out of that one. Absolutely. Jordan, thank you again. Listeners, thank you all for listening, and we'll be back again soon.